Welcome to Driving Forces, your weekly news show focused on the politics and policies that are dominating discussion here on WBAI 99.5 FM and as always streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and as always at this time, I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. Celeste, how are you doing today? Hanging in there, Jeff. It's uh, It's been quite a week for news, obviously, but, uh, you know, trying trying to keep a positive outlook, I guess. You know, it was just so interesting because, you know, I a Tuesday of this week was just such an incredibly horrible day. Uh, when you think of the, the incident that took place on the subway here, we're going to talk about that in a moment, but the, the, the pace of news this week has been just incredible, Celeste. Yeah, there's, there's really been a ton going on. And obviously, yeah, between uh, what was happening in the subway, what was happening with elected officials, just a lot to keep track of. And on top of that, of course, you know, that small matter of the pandemic. Yeah, and I don't think we're ever going to go a year, let alone a month, it feels like these days, a year without at least one elected official in New York State getting arrested for something. You know, I mean, you think about, (laughs) and I'm not even making light of this because, you know, you start to think about what just happened with uh, Brian Benjamin, who I know you have been trying to get on this show for weeks now. Well, you know, we'll see if we can get him on if he's going to be, I don't know if he's out on bail or where where he is right now, Uh, but we've been opening up that... uh, or presenting that opportunity to have him here on the show. And luckily for WBAI listeners, uh, David Brand on City Watch had one of the other candidates who's running for lieutenant governor, who now has been getting a, a good amount of endorsements in the last 48 hours on his on uh, City Watch uh, recently, too. So, yeah, it, it's just been amazing. I mean, my head is spinning some days, Celeste, when I think about the pace of news and how fast things are moving. It really is true. And it's been, I mean, look, we've been living in news overload for a very long time now. And sometimes I feel, even as somebody who works in the news business, even as somebody who's used to having to juggle all these stories and keep tabs on things, you know, more than just a casual observer, it is really hard to keep track. And and to your point, Jeff, yeah, you know, we're not making light of it, but, you know, just thinking back, uh, is somebody who's been covering politics for a long time, covering New York politicians for a long time, just going back to, uh, you know, say when I first met Eric Adams, for example, he was in the state Senate. And that was around the time that you started seeing this fought with Joe Bruno. And then we had Shelley Silver and there were other scandals there. And then, of course, you know, Governor, <laughs> briefly, Governor Elliot Spitzer <laughs> and then Congressman Anthony Weiner. And just, you know, the, the hits keep on coming, Jeff. It's just amazing. And, you know, and I don't know when it's ever going to stop. It's just unbelievable. So I know we're going to get to our guest in just a few moments. Very briefly, for those who are tuning in, we're going to talk about the pandemic and focus on the pandemic on this show. But the latest developments regarding the uh, mass shooting that took place uh, in New York City's subway system this week, the latest development, Frank James was arrested. And then uh, today, federal prosecutor said he carried out this violent and well-planned attack on the subway system. He was ordered to be held without bail today, and that was during his first appearance in federal court. But I do want to make one you know, uh, uh, observation, which is, you know, I've been on the subways for the last five, six days in a row now. I mean, this is the longest stretch since the pandemic began. And, you know, I've, I've always felt 
you know, at certain points and at certain stations, I've always felt just a little queasy sometimes when it's a very narrow platform, for instance. But I have to say, I'm watching people this week, over, especially yesterday and today, and I've been watching people and how they are being more observant about what is around them. I, I've just gotten that sense that there's more fear, there's more of a concern. And also, I've seen so many more police officers stationed in the subway in the last few days, Celeste. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that kind of cuts both ways, Jeff. I think that, you know, if you've spent any amount of time in the city living there, even visiting, uh, you know, you do want to be aware of your surroundings and you do want to look out, be careful behind you, especially be careful on a narrow subway platform. Yeah. I mean, we have Kendra's law and laws like that for a reason. These incidents do occur. It is good, uh, as my grandfather would always say, to watch your back. Um, at the same time, though, it's I don't want to minimize anything, but it's always been amazing to me. You pack 9 million people into a relatively small space, 9 million people, which is bigger than the populations of, of many states, uh, probably even some countries. And, you know, it's amazing to me that fewer things, you know, that, that, not, that more things don't happen, that there are not more tragedies, that there are not more conflicts. So generally, I think that, you know, you should put these things into perspective, but in the moment and looking at the people whose lives have been affected, uh, you know, by mass incidences like this, but also uh, by the wave of hate crimes or apparent hate crimes that happened during the pandemic. Yeah, it is scary. And, and I really do think it's the right thing to do to just be aware of your surroundings. And it's so interesting because at the same time, I'm watching people who the majority of, of whom are still wearing their masks on the subways. Uh, you know, I know that, uh, what was it, yesterday, the Biden administration announced that it's extending the nationwide mask requirement for public transit for another 15 days as it continues to monitor this uptick in COVID cases. Uh, very rarely have I been seeing anyone on the subway system not wearing their masks now, but that's bringing us to the topic for today. We're going to be focusing on the pandemic because the coronavirus continues to plague us. There were more than 300 million known cases around the world in January of this year. Now, as of uh, Tuesday, it's at half a billion. There have been almost certainly far more infections than than uh, among the global population of 7.9 billion, with many going undetected or unreported. And the reporting gap may just only grow wider as some countries, including the United States, scale back on official testing. As of Sunday, our country was averaging more than 31,000 cases a day. That's an increase now of 3% over the last two, uh, over the last two weeks. And we have seen steeper increases here in the city as well as in Washington, D.C. We're seeing a number of folks, such as Mayor Eric Adams, test positive in quarantine this week. And as Celeste knows, because, and uh, Reggie, our engineer knows, because I was just messaging before this, and our listeners who follow my other show know I've been working with Barry Manilow and then only a few hours before his his show that is opening off Broadway uh, last night, only a few hours before he tested positive as well. We're hearing every day about more people testing positive. Uh, but at the same time, we are seeing, you know, there was the relaxation of requirements such as mask mandates. Well, locally, we're seeing a reverse. More colleges and universities are reinstituting mask mandates amid this rise. Uh, Columbia, for instance, and Barnard College and Pace now requiring masks again. So clearly, we're not out of the woods yet. This brings us to our first guest today, J. David McSwain. Currently, he is a reporter in ProPublica's D.C. office 
previously was an investigative reporter for the Dallas Morning News, where his reporting on the state's outsourced Medicaid system, which benefited companies that systematically deny care to sick children and disabled adults, spurred multiple legislative reforms. Before that, he was a writer with the Austin American Statesman and a small Florida newspaper. His new book, just out, is called Pandemic Incorporated, Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick, published by Atria One Signal Publishers. And it takes us behind the scenes to reveal how traders, contractors, and healthcare companies used one of the darkest moments in our country's history, the pandemic, to fill their pockets. As one reviewer said, he provides a, quote, Roller coaster of a story with blunt prose and a novelist's eye, McSwain takes readers inside private jets and dirty warehouses to expose all manner of crazy and criminal enterprise, and the result is stranger than fiction. J. David McSwain, welcome to Driving Forces. Thank you for having me. Early on in Pandemic Incorporated, you write that what began as a journalistic curiosity about supply shortages and a quest to find answers for Americans who are dying or trapped in nursing homes and apartments would morph into a nearly two-year examination of America's underlying conditions. End quote. You clearly pull back the curtain on the rampant fraud that took place amid the pandemic. What factors allowed this to happen? Uh, well, well, a few things. I mean, we have sort of a rich tradition in this country of uh, seizing advantage of a crisis. Uh, so when the, the first outflows of money started to happen in early 2020, as the Trump administration finally acknowledged that something needed to be done, I sort of knew to look at it. And from there, you know, started looking at specific contracts, figuring out who was getting them. And it appeared that just about anyone with an email address and an LLC could get a major contract. As we dug in, companies were popping up overnight. They were getting a contract, you know, uh, two days later. And for really important things like masks and, and test tubes. And I, I chose to focus first on the Veterans Administration, which oversees the largest hospital network in the country. And they had issued a $34.5 million contract to this company that had no footprint whatsoever. I called the contractor and asked, you know, how do you have these N95s that no one else seems to have? And uh, he says, oh, I've got them. I've got $6 i I'm getting on a private jet in the morning, and I'm going to oversee their delivery to the VA. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. Would you mind if I tag along? And, you know, next thing you know, I'm on a private jet the next morning. And as we're lifting off, he, you know, finally reveals that he doesn't actually have any masks. He's currently trying to find them, and he introduces me to this bizarre underworld of mass brokers and secret investors and people who really filled the vacuum uh, that was left by poor planning, poor leadership, and defunding our national stockpile. And, you know, that, that set me on about a year-and-a-half-long journey just trying to figure out all of these people who have taken the federal government and states and hospitals for a ride and screwed over taxpayers. And David, and thanks for joining us on the program today. Really glad to have you. Um, and we're going to get more into the details about what you found uh, in, in just a moment. And we definitely want to hear about that. But uh, I just really enjoyed the sort of the storytelling here and the narrative and the way you're describing this sort of 
you know, this mind blowing experience of getting on this guy's plane and finding out that, you know, that some of these things were bogus or non-existent. I mean, just what was it like for you to go on this journey and, and sort of try to make sense of what you were seeing? This is a pandemic that's killing thousands of people. And these people are just sort of, I don't know, you, you tell me, I mean, what, what was it like yeah. for you to, to see this in person? Well, as, as an American, I was outraged, you know, I was frustrated. I, I wanted, you know, my fellow Americans to be protected and get the things they need. And you were, we we're just seeing this, this mess. And as I got closer to it, I mean, there were moments of humor. It was just so twisted. You couldn't help, you know, I ended up dealing with these really bizarre people who decided to become mask brokers. Uh, but having that front row seat, you know, it, you sort of carry two, uh, a couple things with you. One is just extreme worry for the healthcare workers who are relying on these things. And, you know, over time, I just really felt, man, the American people are going to be outraged to learn that our national response, our national well-being is in the hands of these mercenaries, buccaneers and pirates, as one of the characters in the book calls them. And, you know, they're all just trying to get rich and they're, price gouging, they're not delivering on things, they're delivering things that don't work. Uh, you know, in one one example, I, I guess we can get to that in a second, but yeah, it was, it, it was just the, I don't know, I, there was a lot going through my mind, at the same time, I'm just there to observe and write it all down, and, and the behavior was so strange, it kind of writes itself. And and David, tell us about. Go ahead, tell us about that example because I, I I know you have many of them, but uh, which one jumped yeah. out at you that you were going to mention? Yeah, so we we ended up working on a story, just trying to gather up. You know, here are all the contractors that just popped up overnight. And, you know, something like a billion dollars in the first month or so had been given to contractors with no experience, and one of them was this company called Philicate, which had. Uh, Incorporated and six days later landed a $10 million contract with the Federal Emergency Management Agency for COVID-19 test kits. And at the time, those weren't around, you know, and these were supposed to be the PCR test kits and our, we were woefully behind. It was killing us. We couldn't catch up to the pandemic because we couldn't test. So this was a big job, but this company was new. They had no medical experience, no medical supply chain experience. And as we dug further, we realized that its owner had a history of fraud allegations and been sued by the Federal Trade Commission for, you know, uh, alleged false practices. And, you know, we just throw it in a story. I hear from a state health worker after the story publishes. He says, you know, I, I'm, I, I've received these test tubes that you were talking about, and I was just baffled. They're completely unusable. They don't fit standard lab equipment. They're not sterile. They're just thrown in a bag. You know, they're supposed to be hermetically sealed. I didn't know what they were, so I showed them to a colleague, and he recognized them. They're mini soda bottle preforms. They're these little plastic tubes that, with heat and pressure, are used to make two-liter bottles, and they're completely useless. Uh, and I happened to be in Texas as we were figuring some of this out, and, and, this, and the warehouse happened to be there outside of Houston. And I, I show up and start asking questions. They don't want me around, but I go around the corner and end up peeking into their garage as they're loading these things in, and, and I can see they have temp workers using literal snow shovels to gather up these soda bottles from larger bins to put them in a smaller bin, and they have workers just squirting saline in. Some people are wearing masks, some aren't. 
there's a giant fan whipping air around and whatever contaminants are in it. And they're, you know, they're loading them in a truck that's supposed to be refrigerated, but it's an enterprise rental truck. And when I reported, when we report this stuff back to FEMA, they had to tell all 50 states and territories not to use these test tubes because they had distributed them. Uh, and they were completely useless. And that set back testing all over the country. And the, the thing that really shocked me about this was because FEMA accepted the test tubes, and the, com- the company was paid as a result of that. And contract experts, experts I talked to said because the government accepted them, they accepted something, it's hard, it's hard to make the case that the contractor did anything wrong. So they got paid, and we ended up with useless testing. And you're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming live at WBAI. I.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined by my co-host, Les Katz-Marston, and we're talking with author J. David McSwain about his book, Pandemic Incorporated. What really comes across throughout the book is what at one point you call a shameful and enduring failure to prepare for COVID-19. What should have been done before a pandemic even began? Oh, you know, it had been, uh, if you look at government reports from the CDC, and, and, and other organizations, this was prophesied. It was laid out, especially after swine flu in 2009, 2010. We knew there would be a shortage of N95 masks. We knew that states and the federal government were going to have a hard time communicating with one another and that there'd be conflicting policies. We knew we needed to fund the strategic national stockpile, and none of that was really addressed. And by the time COVID hit, because we had slowly defunded the stockpile due to politics, we had something like 1% of the personal protective equipment that we needed just for that first wave. So we were grossly ill-prepared. And, and what stuff we did have was very quickly distributed, and, and the federal government found itself in a position where we don't have anything. we got to hire people. States and cities are in the same position, and they're just driving the price up on each other, and it created a, a bonanza for people who would take advantage of it. And what was so outrageous to me as I went through the pages, I found myself shaking my head at points when I was reading about how people who were getting these funds, how they were really spending the money. Enlighten our listeners in terms of how people who were not legitimate businessmen were spending the money that they received for the government uh, for something as important as masks, for instance, how they really spent those funds. Sure. Well, the, the Paycheck Protection Program is probably the best example of that. The $800 billion or so program largely forgivable loans from the Small Business Administration to ensure small businesses stay afloat and employees can feed their families and pay the rent. And because there were so few safeguards on this program and speed was prioritized above all else, it was just about the easiest con you could do. You could lie on a couple documents and get millions that week. And we saw this. People bought yachts, Rolls Royces. They paid off debts. They paid child support, you know, which is nice but still illegal. And, uh, you know, luck- luckily... There are ways to catch up to this, but because that money went out so quickly and so indiscriminately, we're in a situation where law enforcement and federal prosecutors are having to track down each of these one by one to figure out 
whether or not the money actually went to keeping businesses afloat uh, and went to employ, you know, keeping employees employed. Uh, now that said, I mean that program did save a lot of businesses, but it was so easy to con that we've seen, you know, I think the last time I looked was something like 500 uh, people being criminally charged. J. David McSwain is the author of Pandemic Inc., Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick. And David, I, I don't know if there's a way to to sort of quantify this, but in your reporting over the course of this reporting, did you get a sense of uh, with these contracts that were sort of botched or didn't work out, how much of the time the people were straight up chiselers? like exploiting this pandemic and how much of the time they were just hapless. Like they, maybe they meant to do the right thing or they thought they had the stuff, but it it didn't work out. You know, it's hard to tell someone's intentions and we can never truly know. And, and that's, that's sort of the central tension of one of the main characters, uh, Robert Stewart Jr. Who invited me on the private jet. You know, I wondered the whole time, you know, because he's, he's the one who introduced me to this. He was saying, you know, this dark underbelly and it's terrible. Uh, but I could see some of his things weren't matching up. And I began to wonder, you know, is he is he one of these bad guys he's pointing out uh, or is he the good guy? And it seemed to me like he was trying to figure it out along the way. Uh, and that was sort of the central tension. And I, But I come to find out, you know, prosecutors end up following up on our story and, and charge him with a, with a federal crime. But in the process of their digging, they found him to be complicit in two completely unrelated scams. Uh, and, you know, he ends up becoming something of a tragic figure. So, you know, it's hard to tell who's who. I mean, and this is America, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with being entrepreneurial and trying to get in there. And, uh, but it's when you are taking advantage and you're hurting people for your own gain uh, that it becomes a problem and, and you're going to end up And then I know that these things play out over a very long time period, but talking about how this isn't a new thing uh, in America, when you're talking about some of these things, I'm thinking back to like uh, profiteering in the Civil War, the the False Claims Act, given rise to that, um, you know, people trying to make a quick buck off a government that desperately needs supplies and equipment for uh, a major campaign, in this case, a pandemic, but at that time, a war, Uh, you know. Knowing what we know now, do you have any projections for what's going to happen to these people that were ripping us off? Right. Uh, well, a couple of things there. Yeah, I, I, I have a chapter in the book where we really talk about the rich history of American profiteers and snake oil salesmen. And I had to make choices because there are just so many examples, uh, including, the, you know, during the Civil War. It, it really is, you know... It was no stroke of genius on my part to know that this stuff was going to happen. What was shocking was the scale of it and what, how little the government did to mitigate it. The, what, what was really brazen is, you know, most fraud is usually perpetrated, you know, business to consumer, people to people, right? But most mm-hmm. people don't so brazenly try to defraud the government because the government keeps track. They have paperwork, they have receipts, they're auditors. So something happened here that is different than we've seen in history where there was just this audacious sense that they could get away with it. And, you know, there was one interesting example of a, of a character who he took advantage of the Paycheck Protection Program, bought a mansion in Florida and, and all these other things that they detail in the book. And, you know, as, as law enforcement's catching up to him, he goes on the lam. He's eventually caught in Croatia. 
And according to news, uh, news reports there, ended up telling a judge, uh, well, I, I fled because what I was doing was fine during the Trump administration, but when Biden was elected, I was worried I was going to get prosecuted, which of course isn't true, but it says something about the mentality in this particular moment. Uh, and, you know, I do think there will be a reckoning because, you know, people are frustrated and we're, we're sick of being in this. And, you know, these are the people who sort of represent how we got in our own way as a country and as a society. And I know we only have about a minute or so left, and I want to end on a more positive note. Uh, you know, you you note that while reporting, you saw greed, you saw selfishness, rugged individualism, but you also point out that you saw hope as well uh, and love. So let's end on the positive note. Where did you see hope and love while doing this? <laughs> well, I didn't see a ton of it in my actual reporting because I was focusing on uh, profiteering. I, I meant more generally. You know, we did see really valiant efforts by healthcare workers and uh, a lot of heroism that, you know, I think deserves its own book. And, you know, the rush to get the vaccine, while that created a lot of profit for a few wealthy individuals, I don't think any of us would argue that wasn't a, a pretty amazing feat of ingenuity and we're all safer for it. So there, you know, it's not all bad. And, and as I just, you know, as I show in the book, there are funny moments in these dark times. You know, I'm interviewing, I, I finally figure out this person who was behind this deal I've been tracking for months. And uh, it turns out she's just an elderly stoner and she she offers me marijuana, you know, um, after she's been hyped up to me for so long. So, you know, we're, we're more than than one thing as, as, as humans. And I tried to sort of capture the texture of the, all the other things that include laughter and anger and and the despair that we've all felt. J. David McSwain is the author of Pandemic Inc., Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick. It's out from Atria, One Signal. And uh, David, where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, you can go to ProPublica.org, uh, nonprofit investigative journalism. That's where our work is. Uh, as, as well, I'm on Twitter at David McSwain. And uh, I do have a website, davidmcswain.com. Perfect. David McSwain, thanks so much for joining us here on WBAI today. And thank you for all your reporting in this book. Thank you. You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And I think that was a great conversation, Jeff. Nice work getting David McSwain to join us because if you think about it, that's the kind of stuff we should be talking about. That's the kind of stuff we like to talk about on this program. Things that impact our lives, decisions in public policy and politics that affect the way we live. And for us to keep having those conversations here on 99.5 FM, we're going to need your help. So as always, we just want to take a moment to please ask you to go to WBAI.org and give as generously as you can to support this radio station. David McSwain works for ProPublica. That is a, a wonderful, wonderful nonprofit investigative reporting source that I really like, that I refer to, that I admire a lot. They rely on donations. We rely on donations. We have no commercial programming uh, on, on this station. We are listener-supported nonprofit 501c3 radio. Please go to WBAI.org, and you can make a one-time donation, or even better, even better, you can become a BAI buddy. 
and become a recurring donor in the name of your favorite program, which is obviously Driving Forces, but a close second might be Jeff's other program, City Watch. Uh, you can do uh, just $15 a month. Uh, you can do more, but you can help us keep Free Speech Radio alive and well here at BAI. I've been around for over 60 years. We'd like to keep it going for at least another 60, Jeff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, as he was speaking, there was a question I wanted to ask him, but then I realized I don't want to give away one of the best parts of his book. There's this mysterious woman he talks about that people keep mentioning, sort of like a broker with the White mm. House who can get you a good deal, who's going to be able to broker uh, this uh, Juanita Ramos. I'll just say it as far as that. And he eventually tracks her down and finds out who she is. Uh, and I was going to ask, but then I realized, no, I want you to read the book because when you read Pandemic Inc., you'll be able to find out who this mysterious woman is. And it, it is, it, you know, just it took me back, Celeste, you know, to mm -hmm. my much younger days as a reporter when I enjoyed investigative reporting. And I know, you know, this is your livelihood, too. It's the type of thing that, you know, you don't want to give away on the radio station because you want people to pick up the book and read it and be amazed then and not already know the answer now. But, you know, even still, the program is a way for us to let people know about interesting things like this, interesting books, interesting people, interesting events uh, in our city and in our country. And we need your help to do that. WBAI.org. You can give once. You can give a recurring donation. It is very quick. Only takes a few minutes to set up. Just set it and go and feel confident. Feel good about yourself. We wanted to end that conversation on a positive note. Feel good about yourself that you are contributing to the health and the longevity of free speech radio in New York. And one more reminder, since tomorrow is April 15th, your donation to WBAI is tax deductible. So check it out, WBAI.org. And we know we sound like a broken record, but this is important to WBAI and to the success of our, of our station. And speaking of records, we are going to take a short break and bring you a classic song that, of course, was first released on record. Here's Earth, Wind, and Fires. That's the way of the world. Never 
Wind and Fire. That's the way of the world here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz Marston here as always with the amazing, wonderful, and talented Jeff Simmons. And we're going to be taking your calls after our next guest who's coming right up. So we just want to make sure you have the studio number handy. Put it in your phone. Have it with you for every show. 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. So we're focusing on the pandemic in this edition of Driving Forces. Uh, in the last half hour, we spoke with uh, David McSwain of ProPublica about his new book, Pandemic Inc., that has some really, really great reporting on the widespread fraud and corruption that took place in the effort to get supplies uh, to deal with the coronavirus. And obviously, we're still talking about this because the pandemic and COVID-19 is still very much a part of our lives. We've come quite a long way since the very dark days of the pandemic uh, back in 2020, when we really didn't know what was going on, when much of the country was shut down, uh, when we were seeing, unfortunately, refrigerator trucks outside of hospitals because we could not deal with the death toll. So things have improved since then, but we are not out of the woods. Uh, two in new incarnations of the Omicron variant now circulating across New York State. And officials believe that is what's responsible for what we are seeing now, which is an uptick of infections. And that's happening in other places in the country as well. We're not seeing the level of serious disease Again, as we were seeing at the beginning of the pandemic with people uh, in ICUs, ventilators, and so on. But we're still learning a lot about these new variants and whatever comes next. Uh, we're essentially back to the level of case, case rates, uh, you know, going back to the Delta wave. Um, that's a comment from the deputy director of the State Department of Health to the Times. So we're trying to figure out, uh, you know, the best ways to deal with the vaccine, uh, to deal with the pandemic, and of course, a lot of that is going to come back to the vaccine. And that's what we are going to talk about with our guest right now. David France is an award-winning investigative journalist, New York Times bestselling nonfiction editor, and Oscar-nominated documentary filmmaker. Uh, he's received a lot of awards for his book, How to Survive a Plague. I uh, was also nominated for an Oscar, won two Emmys, Director's Guild Award, uh, appeared on a ton of best of the year lists. Uh, and it also was aired on PBS's Independent Lens, where it won Peabody Award. Uh, you may have seen his 2017 film, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, which was on a Netflix original documentary. Uh, his other documentaries include Welcome to Chechnya, which was on HBO Max 2020, won a special jury award for documentary editing at Sundance. So now his latest film is How to Survive a Pandemic that also just started airing on HBO Max, and it chronicles the race to create a vaccine, but it also sheds light on the inequities in access to vaccines and the reluctance among some communities to get vaccinated. So David France, thanks for joining us here on WBAI and welcome to Driving Forces. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So you started filming a lot, gathering uh, material for this documentary. Tell us a little bit about when you got the idea and how it all began. Well, it began with the with the arrival of the pandemic itself. You know, we were all sent home, me and my crew, um, and we just started obsessing the way I think everybody did on the news and on you know, what might be happening, what um, what people were rumoring could be in the pipeline. And we really early on knew that um, it was going to take a vaccine 
to change all of that. Uh, and so just as, you know, people who were in full panic mode, we tried to find out who was working on the vaccines and we tried to see what the waterfront looked like and what they were trying to, uh, to do. And this was really just to calm us down. And after a while, we realized that this was really the largest single uh, uh, undertaking in the pandemic and nobody could see it. You know, it was just, we were all blind to what was happening in the most consequential scientific endeavor of our lifetimes. And, um, and that seemed wrong to us. Um, but uh, there's so much secrecy around science and, and the way um, vaccines are being developed in, in competing labs and competing big pharma uh, operations. Um, but it was all funded by government monies, you know, the billions that came out of Washington for Operation Warp Speed, matched by similar, um, you know, generous um, uh, fundings from the UK and from the from the European Union, from from Beijing, from Moscow, we, and we, we we wanted to track that money, and and made our presentation to the people who were doing the work and said, you know, win or lose, whatever you do, needs to be recorded for future generations to know how we dealt with this existential threat. And that became not just the thing that we were obsessing on, but it became our new film project. And what was so interesting is, and there are so many, you know, I, I call them intimate scenes. You, you really had what I think is unprecedented access to some, some major figures for this film. Was it easy to get this access? We would imagine others you approached wouldn't agree, but you seem to get a lot of good access. Well, people really got the, the, what we were talking about, that this was essential and necessary to record. Um, and they did things that they had never done before. The FDA has never opened up the FDA regulatory process to scrutiny from outside journalists and filmmakers, um, researchers and, uh, and executives at all of the major, um, you know, candidate vaccines said to us at the very beginning, sure, come on in. Um, we made a promise to them that we wouldn't share any information across companies and that we would uh, not reveal anything that we were seeing or learning until the first quarter of 2022, and that's what we did. We, we, we were carefully guarding our footage and our knowledge and insights along the way. Um, but if they had failed, if Pfizer had thrown so much uh, um, of their own money and government's money at, the, at their problem and failed, that failure would have been part of our story, and they knew that. Uh, and they were willing to allow us to experience that with them. Same thing with... Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, uh, the NIH, and their partnership with Moderna. So really, we, we did pull back that curtain, and, um, and, and we do show what I think is the most up-close and personal, really, uh, perspective on a, a scientific uh, challenge and the way people mounted their response to it. 
And uh, we are, you know, there's there's such so much rich material here. And if you're just joining us, we are speaking to David France he about his uh, new documentary, uh, How to Survive a Pandemic, which just began airing on HBO Max. And, uh, you know, David, I wanted to ask you, uh, th- there are a couple of different storylines, big picture storylines in your work here. One is about the development, the race to develop the vaccine. And then there's another story about acceptance and distribution of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, talk to us a little bit about how you fit those two things together and why you thought it was important to have both of those things figure into your storytelling. Well, you know, it seemed essential. And, and everybody in the world of public health was, was underscoring this with us from the beginning, that a vaccine that shows incredible efficacy in a laboratory someplace is not what's going to get us out of the the lockdown phase of the pandemic, um, a vaccine in an arm is what's going to do that. So how do how do we track that? We we spent the first eleven months of our filming looking at the science, and the science produced these miraculous results. It was a it was a, the summit of, of scientific achievement. You know, never before have we seen such effective vaccines uh, produced. Um, across the globe in cooperation with one another in such a rapid way. And, not, and previously, it had, the five years had been the quickest any vaccine had made it to market. Here we had these vaccines ready to ship after 11 months. And then we said, okay, now let's watch what they were calling the last mile. Let's see how this vaccine gets into the far crevices and villages and mountain communities of the world. Uh, because that would be essential. Vaccinating the world would be essential to uh, to this desire of ours to be free from the pandemic. So for us, it was always those two steps together, and and they make up the two parts of the film then, which is largely chronological. We have this great scientific moment of achievement and victory. What next? You know, I, I think about the last presidential administration where journalists were often portrayed as enemies of the people. So, of course, I selfishly enjoyed that a journalist is one of the heroes of this story. Why did you choose John Cohen of Science Magazine to uh, play a central role? Well, Chip, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, uh, uh, I also, as a journalist, um, have felt the sting of that last administration. Um uh, and I, I really do feel that that, that journalism has been um, one of the uh, essential elements in this pandemic for ex- exchanging information, challenging information, um, getting to the um, the balance of information so that we have clear messages. And um, in the case of science journalism, it was about prying open these secret doors. Uh, uh, as we were doing with our film, so that the world could see what was going on there. And John Cohen, who works for Science Magazine, um, is one of the world's leading journalists on vaccine science. Uh, he's also a charming um, uh, guy, plays the piano, <laughs> is a musician, and uh, he, he's more than just his bylines, but uh, he's also a friend of mine. And he and I have covered the HIV-AIDS pandemic shoulder to shoulder for decades. When I was still in the obsession phase of my uh, 
kind of my fixation on the, the vaccines, I called John and, and asked him if he could help interpret some of the science for me, which he did. And then when we thought we'd make a film about it, I asked him if he would come on as a consultant, and he did. And then when I realized the power of journalism in this entire enterprise, I, I went to him with what I thought was a very difficult proposal. Let me film you during, doing your work. Let me put you on the big screen. And, uh, and uh, uh, what I learned is that that was the easiest possible proposal for John Cohen. He's such a ham and uh, such a great character to watch and really did interpret that whole journey for us. And uh, so that's how he became the star of the film. You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, and we're talking with David France. He's the director of the new documentary film, How to Survive a Pandemic. It's out on HBO Max. Um, David, you also in the film uh, drill down on a community organization in Pittsburgh. I believe it's the Neighborhood Resilience Project, um, mm-hmm. you know, which is out there trying to get those vaccines and arms. As you say, that's the other half of the equation. The science is one thing. The application is another. And uh, what can you tell us about what you learned or what people can learn from your film about resistance to the vaccine? That's something we've talked a lot, a lot about here on this station, and we still hear quite a bit about it. Well, hesitancy around the vaccine was something that everybody was worried about to begin with. And the fact that, that there was such um, a full-bore race uh, and one that was highly politicized by the last administration um, it really made that uh, problem worse. You know, people who had not previously been um, suspicious of vaccines found themselves falling into these kind of conspiratorial holes and and very worried about what this, uh, this the substance was. Some of it was crazy. You know, the the, the Bill Gates chip that everyone feared was going to be somehow injected in their arms. Um, that, but, but some of it was just founded in a, a real concern for, for what was going on. And, uh, and in, in America, at least, um, uh, an understanding of how poorly science has often comported itself um, in the BIPOC community and marginalizing so much of America and outs, you know, to the outside of our healthcare system. Uh, so uh, we thought that we wanted to find where those dynamics were at play. And that's why we went to Pittsburgh. Um, as a part of our American story, we found resilience, uh, resistance, I'm sorry, also in South Africa, also in Brazil. We shot across five continents. Everywhere we went, there was Resistance, it all had its kind of unique uh, uh, histories. But I think the solution that we learn in watching how the vaccines rolled out in Pittsburgh is a solution about uh, to bring the population inside, to answer questions, to dialogue, um, and not to instruct, but to um, explain and answer questions and demystify. It's not easy, uh, but it, it, it works. And we, we watch that in the film as it works in Pittsburgh simultaneously. And this was something we just didn't anticipate at all. Um, and this was the biggest surprise for me 
in watching all these events transpire, the needle changed so that the hesitancy and suspicion around the vaccination campaign died down in the communities of color in the U.S. and and communities of, of poor and marginalized folks and skyrocketed among middle-class whites uh, to the point where 50% of Republicans and Trump voters said they weren't going to take the vaccine because they, they, they had no faith in it. And this is bizarrely the vaccine, the, the one accomplishment of the Trump administration, I think that everybody should be proud of and his most ardent supporters hold that accomplishment in suspicion and disregard and have, have said uh, an anti-vax movement like we haven't seen before in this country, um, and one which has still kept large portions of the population unvaccinated. And I know we only have about a minute or two left, uh, you know, so I just want to, you know, wrap up by asking, you know, where do we go from here? What are the lessons we can learn from this experience to help us to survive the next pandemic? I think the first one is a big one. Science is our friend. Science solves these problems. Science has the ability to identify these problems and to bring about a solution. And that is really a key message. Um, the other thing is we need to strengthen our public health systems. And in the U.S., like much of the rest of the world, they have been uh, uh, stripped down um looted and made powerless. And that includes the World Health Organization, which like literally has no power to be able to direct what needs to be directed in a global way. A pandemic is not something that you can vaccinate your your own country into a uh, you know an island free from this pandemic. Because we haven't vaccinated the rest of the world, because the vaccines have been rolled out at such a high price in, from many comp- companies. And because governments like our own and those in Europe and other wealthy regions of the world have hoarded vaccines, the situation today in lower income countries and in low income countries still remains the same. They are largely unvaccinated. Today, 15% of the people in those countries have received even one dose. And that's what has created the marketplace, if you will, for the creation of the variants that have come back to to haunt us and will continue coming back to haunt us, potentially even threatening the advances of science so far, because on a political will front, we have not made these vaccines available. David Francis, an award-winning investigative reporter. He is the director of How to Survive a Pandemic, which you can catch on HBO Max. And David, thanks for joining us today. How can people find out more about you and your work? Oh, it's always a pleasure. And thank you for for shedding light on this. Um, You can go to SurviveAPandemicFilm.com and see um, some of the backstory and and, uh, and some some work with our partners, people who are on the ground who are uh, struggling to make sure that the vaccine is available to the people. Uh, And you can see the rest of my work on davidfrance.com. David France, thanks so much for joining us here on Driving Forces on WBAI. And folks who who are now hearing a siren behind me because my 
my apartment is not soundproofed. Uh, interestingly or ironically, I live very close to Elmhurst Hospital, uh, which, as you all know, was we, you know, I live in one of the epicenters of the epicenter. So sorry about the siren going by right now, but how appropriate given the topic we've been talking about. You know, in fact, today I spent uh, a few hours. Sorry about that siren. Uh, we spent it. I spent. <laughs> This is real few, life. This is live this is radio, life. Jeff. This is live community radio. It's actually I don't think outside, of anything outside to my building. I spent a few hours with EMS workers for a new exhibition at the uh, city at the NYC Fire Museum, and was talking with them for a while about their work over the last two years. And they, and they talked with me about, uh, you know, they didn't want to go on camera with the crews I had there to talk about certain things, but they were talking about the pain of all the people, all the calls that they went on and the anguish and the pain and, you know, and about a lot of their colleagues who also, uh, got COVID while, you know, on the, in the line of duty. So I won't belabor that right now because, you know, I know we're running out of time. We've only got two minutes left and I'm really sorry, folks, that I didn't, we wanted to continue the conversation with David France for a while. Uh, so we weren't able to get to the phone calls today, Celeste. Yeah, you know, that, and that's fine. But um, we should just remind people, of course, that, uh, you know, we can only, again, have conversations like this about important issues, about COVID, about uh, vaccination, about fraud against the government, about our elected officials, about how we live and work and make decisions uh, about public safety in our city and on our subways. We can only do that here with your help. WBAI is listener-supported free speech radio. We are non-commercial. The only way we can pay the bills, stay on the air, pay rent on the tower is with your help. Please go to WBAI.org today to give as generously as you can to support free speech radio. And Jeff, I think you probably have some stuff to tell us about what we have coming up in future programs. Well, we will not, I will not be on City Watch this coming Sunday. We're preempted, but David Brand will be back on the 24th. His wife is almost due, uh, I should say. So congratulations, he's told, David Brand. Yeah. Yay. So he's told me I might be filling in on the 24th if he ha, if she's in labor at that point, but we'll know and I'll announce it on the show if I fill in at that point. But I want to take a moment to also, uh, thank our guests today, J. David McSwain, author of Pandemic Incorporated and who you just heard from, David France, Director of How to Survive. It's all about David's today. Think about it. Uh, it David France, Director of How to Survive a Pandemic on HBO Max. I also want to thank the amazing Reggie Johnson for engineering today's show. And, you know, and as Celeste and I have reminded you again and again, and you're hearing on other shows, we do it because we care about the station. You know, it's not because we have to do it, but we want to do it. We want to remind you to support WBAI and become a BAI buddy in the name of this show or any show that means something to you. So we will be back next Thursday at this time with another great show. But before uh, between now and then, for those of you who who celebrate, we wish you a happy Passover and a happy Easter this weekend, and we will see you next week. Thanks again for tuning in to Driving Forces, and as Celeste loves to say, we'll see you on the radio next week. <laughs>